Welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every day, decisions are made across Maine that impact our environment, and Mainers play a crucial role as we speak up for climate action, the clear air, clear water, and open spaces that we all love. Come sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories that you need to know, what lies ahead, and hear what you can do about it. Thanks for listening as we share our view from the front lines. Welcome to Frontline Voices. I'm your host, Colin Durant. For the last year, our special co-host and NRCM Rising Leadership Team member, Kate Shambo, has been bringing you discussions with young le- environmental leaders in Maine. In this episode, Kate talks with Brookie Award winner and UMaine student Gabby Hillier about her trip to the COP27 International Climate Summit in Egypt. Gabby's perspective is a really exciting way to cap off this year-long series. I especially wanted to thank Kate for being part of our podcast and helping bring us some unique perspectives from young leaders across Maine to our listeners. So thanks, Kate, for that. Uh, Before we hear from Kate and Gabby, I did want to note that the big news in the past week is that on Wednesday, uh, December 7th, the next session of the Maine legislature officially kicked off. Uh, Of course, NRCM's advocacy director, Pete Didesheim, was there taking in all the pomp and circumstance and speaking with lawmakers about our priorities. There's a great video from him in the Statehouse on our social media you can check out if you'd like. Um, But it was certainly exciting also to see that on that day, Representative Rachel Talbot Ross was elected to be Maine's first Black Speaker of the House. Um, Unfortunately, on that day, Uh, The legislature did fail to pass a heating relief bill, an emergency measure that was being sought to bring relief to Mainers struggling with that high cost of uh, heating oil. Uh, After uh, it failed, after Senate Republicans voted against the measure, uh, it had passed the House. Um, Getting relief to Mainers right away for these expensive fossil fuels is urgently needed, absolutely necessary. But of course, each and every one of these shocking heating bills serves as a reminder that moving forward, we really have to do everything we we can to speed up the switch to high efficiency heat pumps, clean energy, all these all these climate solutions that help uh, break our dependence on fossil fuels once and for all. Well, talking about climate change, well, this whole episode is about climate change, but talking about climate change, uh, I did want to give folks a quick reminder that on December 31st of this year, NRCM is going to be hosting our 15th annual Polar Bear Dip and Dash. Uh, This this time it's in person. Uh, There's also a virtual option if you'd like, but it's in person at Southern Maine Community College. So you can head head on over to our website to register to Dip Dash or do both and take part in this really exciting and fun opportunity to support NRCM's climate action advocacy. Um, Okay, you've heard enough from me. Let's hand it over to Kate and hear from her conversation with Gabby about her experience as part of UMaine's official delegation to the most recent International Climate Summit. Thank you so much, Gabby, for joining me today. Yes, no problem at all. Uh, Happy to be here. So you just went on a really exciting trip in the last couple months out to Egypt. Is that correct? Yes. So I was um, gone for about the first half of November um, out in Egypt. Yeah. You were out there for the United Nations Climate Change 
conference, correct? Yes. So it's um, called the COP, usually. Uh, it's the Conference of the Parties, and it's basically the reestablishment of the United Nations or United Framework Convention on Climate Change. The UNFCCC is what most people call it. It's been a while since I've had to say that out loud. But um, it's uh, basically the kind of framework or the legal backing for most countries, I think close to 198, um, that are participating in trying to mitigate climate change, uh, mainly human-driven impacts on the climate. And you were part of the UMaine, the University of Maine delegation. Who else was there with you? Um, yeah, so there were a few of us, about nine of us in total came from the university and we had to split it up into basically two teams. There was a team for week one, which I was a part of, um, that included Dr. Sidney Eisenhower, Dr. Nicholas Machinsky, who are both professors at the university. Um, and then uh, two students that I went with as well. So Julia Hilton Smith, who is a PhD student and Victoria Markowitz, who is a master's student. And then um, the next week, Nick actually, st Professor Nick Machinsky stayed for the entire two weeks. Um, but then others joined him, including Michaela Bulmer, Adam Dagnow, Daniel Hay, and uh, Anthony Moffa. So um, like I said, there are about nine of us who came officially from the University of Maine, each with a variety of different backgrounds and different uh, points of study. So we all, like I came from ecology, a few folks came from anthropology, but it was a pretty dynamic team. Yeah. You had quite the crew with you. Yes, quite the crew. Um, very impressive people all around, extremely smart and capable. And we were able to kind of spend quite a bit of time preparing for the conference together, which was nice. We met just about every other week um, and, you know, learned a lot from everybody about their different perspectives and their different interests in the conference. And it was a really cool experience. Yeah. So what did you and your team end up presenting while you were out there? So we didn't uh, present directly, although uh, Professor Eisenhower did um, present to the Ringo constituency. The Ringo meeting basically is a group of other universities, researchers, and others who um, are all following negotiations and are basically presenting on different areas of that negotiations are taking, kind of sharing in and out with the group of what... Um, people are talking about, how they're talking about it, um, and what the the ramifications of that may be. And so Cindy was uh, wholeheartedly participating in that. Yeah. But otherwise, I think the rest of us were just there as observers. So we basically, and, and some of us were conducting research as well. So basically there to do some interviews, listen, learn, and then bring a lot of those lessons back to me. So as someone who was not in Egypt during the meeting itself. What were some of the major takeaways that you um, learned about or discovered or listened to while you were at the conference itself? So um, one of the biggest takeaways that I think has made kind of uh, international news is that there's a new established funding for what they call loss and damages, which is basically a new form of finance for countries that are losing um, spaces or specific like buildings, cultural spaces, sites, and other things 
to climate change. Um, and so this is a new metric for countries that are particularly vulnerable to um, maintain their identity as different environmental shifts happen. So that's probably the biggest takeaway from this conference as a whole. Um, but as a person who was there in Egypt, I actually learned a lot about the um, wide variety of different research that's happening uh, on climate change, as well as um, particularly for me, the different layers of um, kind of indigenous sovereignty that are tied up in these discussions. So I was following the local communities and indigenous peoples platform, um, which is a group that had been started a few years back to basically bring local communities and indigenous leaderships together to, to kind of share their own um, ideas, thoughts, and opinions about the ongoing negotiations, as well as secure a much more formal platform for different parties to interact with Indigenous leaders from all over the world. So this became a really interesting nexus point for me because I was able to hear, similar to a lot of conversations that are happening in Maine now, how are um, Indigenous peoples thinking or responding to climate change? How are different negotiations shaping or impacting Indigenous sovereignty? And, and overall kind of, you know, what, what are these big differences between equally hearing from people or equitably hearing from people? And so those were kind of some of the lessons that I think emerged through my experience in Egypt um, during the conference. I'm actually relieved to hear that they are putting so much weight onto Indigenous people's voices, because not only are they one of the most impacted groups of people, um, not just from climate change itself in, say, if they're coastal rising waters, um, but also in the changes that we're making and policies that are being created. Um, it's a voice that is not often heard. So it is it's very cool to hear that they had a voice there. They did. They did have a voice there. And it was um, extremely loud and very present. Do I believe it was recognized fully? No. In fact, I think there's many issues that a lot of other Indigenous scholars and leaders could point to that are happening in the language that was adopted at the end of COP27 um, that kind of removes Indigenous sovereignty or rights as part of the consideration. But I also think that um, in terms of me as a scientist who's not Indigenous, being able to even just experience and hear the perspectives that are happening all over what is known as the United States of America, but also from many other regions of the world, I now have a much wider um, and much more open perspective on different things that I'm doing as a scientist here in Maine, and also a lot more considerations about kind of political or legal developments and how they may shape Indigenous sovereignty, and not just that, but their ability to lead um, us in adaptation towards climate change and how to support that. That sounds like a really wonderful, valuable experience. Yes. Especially in the yeah. work that you do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, were there any questions that were left unanswered while you were there or questions that you maybe didn't have before, but did have upon leaving or afterwards? Um, so I have many, many questions and I had many questions at the beginning, some were answered, some were not answered, and I still have more questions that kind of grow every day as I reflect on this. So actually I was most nervous about this question for the entire interview, but I think the biggest thing for me is that 
there is such a marked difference between equally hearing from all of the voices in the room versus equitably hearing from all of the voices in the room. And I think the negotiations prove that there's um, a lot of work needed to be done to, to make a more equitable recognition of different power dynamics and, and peoples and their expertise within these spaces. Um, and for me, and as kind of a broad question, um, as a scientist, I'm hoping to find ways to support more equitable research and equitable recognition of those voices and knowledge systems and and um, people. But I also think more directly, I had a lot of questions more about, you know, what this means and on a day-to-day scale for a, a state like Maine. What, what do these international negotiations that are setting up funding for entire continents, um, how does that kind of trickle down, for lack of a better word? And, and that's something I'm still very much exploring and that I think my whole delegation was really um, kind of keying in on is like, how do these questions or these commitments shape um, local communities and, and our, our state? Do that, quote unquote, have been figured out, so many steps to take, but what is one priority that you think that we as a state as a country as the world should be prioritizing right now so that that's a really big question um and i wouldn't want to speak in any kind of authority but i think based on my experience at cop one of the biggest uh things that we can do as individuals or as countries is really focus on promoting and supporting leadership from Um, communities that are focused on responding and adapting to climate change, and not only that, but trying to mitigate it um, in every way possible, which often includes being uncomfortable. So changing the way you get your power, changing the way you get to work, changing the way you, um, you know, recycle or throw away your, your garbage after large holiday parties, which will all be coming up. But I also think it's going to be a lot bigger than that. And so you're also going to need to focus just as much on the political leaders that you put into power um, as they are carrying around a lot of weight in these international negotiations. And in particular, um, there's a number of, of different people who are in companies that are shaping these conversations, you know, maybe in front of cameras, maybe behind closed doors. And so just being as aware as possible as to where you kind of put that financial or emotional or political support um, would be my humbled (laughs) and smaller. (laughs) Well, I appreciate it. I know that it was an unfairly large question, but I (laughs) I think you've made some very good points. Yeah. And I think, too, um, you know, this was raised by a few friends during this delegation. But, you know, there's a lot of questions about how we transition right to different ways of extraction um, or not. Maybe not extraction is the right word, but different ways of of maintaining the current um, lifestyles we all have particularly in the United States, which are extremely privileged in different ways. Um, And, you know, it's also too about recognizing that there's probably many things we're going to have to make hard decisions about into the future in terms of maybe we don't always have um, access or or should be using the resources that we have available to us um, and instead figuring out ways to distribute those more evenly and equitably across the billions of people on the planet. So um, I think that is going to be just as much a part of a conversation as to figure out how those resources are, quote, 
greener <laughs> into the future. Yeah. Fair enough. But you haven't just been busy preparing for this conference and being in Egypt and coming back and getting your feedback on the ground. You also recently published a paper about your work, didn't you? Yes. So actually, I um, I uh, I was a author on a, a really wonderful uh group of people or with a wonderful group of people on a publication called Collaboration on the Mudflats um, that's coming out or is out in issues of science and technology that's really focusing on how we do research a little bit differently within the Mitchell Center at the University of Maine, among many other spaces, and trying to just kind of highlight that there's a lot of power dynamics within research and science and, and trying to minimize that as much as possible, or at least think about how we interact with communities and support them differently. So um, yeah, it was a great paper and I feel very privileged to be on it. Um, but yeah, a little bit of my work is on there too. That's really excellent. Well, thank you so much, Gabby, for taking the time to talk to me and catch me up on all the big happenings in the environmental world of this fall. Yes, anytime, Kate. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Maine Environment Frontline Voices. If you enjoy this episode, you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and several other podcast listening apps. Since 1959, NRCM has been tapping into the power of the Maine people, science, and the law to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. To learn more about our work, visit nrcm.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.